Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. This is episode 76 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Lori Wennerholm. She's a clinical specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders with a special interest in head and neck cancer and voice restoration and total laryngectomy. She's a supervisor of speech and swallowing disorders at the White Plains Hospital and the Center for Cancer Care. Lori has over 20 years of clinical experience and 18 years experience teaching undergrad and grad students in the areas of dysphagia and medical speech pathology. Her experience with total laryngectomies and their specific needs has led her to become interested in their type of dysphagia and possible intervention techniques to remediate not only their voice, but their swallowing. Her plan is to resume her PhD studies later this year and complete projects relevant to the total laryngectomy population. Hi, Lori. Hello, Teresa. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm cold. (laughs) I'm freezing. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm so happy to have you on. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yes. Hopefully we'll laugh enough that we get warm enough and we're not freezing anymore. I think so. Yes. All right. So tell the people who you are. Uh, my name is Lori Winterholm. Uh, Corazon is my married name, but I didn't change it. So <laughs> when I've been known as Winterholm for the past 22 years, I've been working primarily for the past about 15 years with head and neck cancer patients. I have a specialization in voice restoration and dysphagia and total laryngectomy, which is a very specialized part of the head and neck cancer population. And I work at the White Plains Hospital Center for Cancer Care, which is a little bit outside New York City. And I also supervise the inpatient speech pathologists within our facility. So it's it's a great place. Awesome. Cool. So I met Lori through Dr. Eric Blicker's fees courses a few years back. We were both helping supervise passes there. So I've just, I've loved getting to know you throughout those, Lori. You're always a wealth of knowledge. So Oh, thank you. I enjoy this too. Yes. Fees is another specialization. So, you know, and interestingly, as we'll talk about, fees is starting to be used for assessment in patients with total laryngectomy and dysphagia. So there are some hallmark papers that are, you know, pretty interesting in in regard to using endoscopy in, in this population where They don't have a larynx. (laughs) Awesome. Yes. They don't have a lot of landmarks. Yes. Yes. It's just like, oh, what am I looking at? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. Awesome. All right. Where are we going to start today, Lori? What do you want to talk about? So I think just having worked with total laryngectomies, as most people know, this is probably the worst expression of the disease in terms of really needing the organ of phonation to be, you know, resected. And so, you know, many times patients will come in, they'll have had like, you know, a hemiglossectomy where part of their tongue is resected and they'll see another patient in the waiting area that, you know, is using a TEP, using, you know, or an electrolarynx and, you know, they look in horror saying, well, I really hope I never end up, you know, even though it's a different subset, you know, that's kind of like the worst 
possible outcome for patients. So I do have a lot of background information and experience working with this population. And, you know, most of my early experience was in Rest, you know, voice restoration, working with their, you know, voice prostheses and trying to troubleshoot problems there, you know, with voice prostheses. And, you know, many times we like to image the neopharynx and image the structures because a lot of problems can result from impaired swallowing function and high pressures, you know, for voice prosthetic failure. So, you know, in seeing these patients swallowing, looking for issues with their voice prosthesis, you really see how impaired their swallowing is, though they underreport it, like, you know, most head and neck cancer patients. So, you know, it, it led me to be interested in kind of, you know, what is the pathophysiology behind their swallowing? Are there trends? Are there patterns? You know, and what can we do for this population where, you know, historically, because we uncoupled the larynx from the digestive tract, thereby eliminated their aspiration risk, you know, so they are non-dysphagic, but they really are dysphagic. They just yeah. typically aspirate. So yeah, it, it, it led me to, you know, say like, you know, your swallow is pretty impaired, dude. You know, <laughs> even if you're not, you know, you're asking through your voice prosthesis was a whole other issue, but you know, you, you really have impaired you know, tongue-based movement or, you know, pseudovolecular structural abnormalities, stricture, things like that, that, you know, can really prohibit them from, you know, resuming a normal diet after their surgery, which is pretty much what they're promised. You know, I've, I've been in a lot of counseling sessions where, you know, patients, they need to kind of buy into the surgery because it is a really big surgery. And one of the statements is, well, your, your swallowing will return to normal. Your swallowing will return to its, you know, pre-cancer baseline, which really isn't the truth. They're not going to aspirate and they're not going to be at risk for pneumonia, but certainly the efficiency of, of function is, is very impaired. I'm so glad you said that because I feel like I've had this debate with like other people before and they're like, well, they can't aspirate. And I'm like, well, but, but stuff isn't working right at still like, and so I'm glad you said that because I feel like that's, that is like a hot, I don't know, it's like a hot topic in our field, but like some speech pathologists still believe that once you take those parts out, essentially you're cured, you're healed. You right. know, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they can have issues, you know, from the oral phase because when you take out the larynx, you have to anchor the neopharynx. So they have, you know, most of laryngectomies are now in the salvage setting. So because of organ preservation, you know, most patients with advanced larynx cancer, unless it's their cartilage is invaded or they're just too advanced, they don't ha even have enough non-cancerous tissue to, to do chemo radiation, they will opt for organ sparing preservation, organ preservation. So chemo radiation, you know, and then with the option of having a laryngectomy as a salvage. So many of these patients have both, you know, the effects of chemo radiation, the fibrosis, and now they have a large surgery with flap reconstruction, you know, poor healing tissues, and then kind of all of that. So you do have these patients with, you know, scarred up tongue bases. You have that, you know, completely fibrotic, you know, and McConnell many years ago found that patients with laryngectomy really need intact tongue base function to propel the bolus. So if you take away that, you really take away their physiology. They have no hyoid bone 
to pull open the UES for elevation that way. So really their pressures are, are off, but it can start in the oral cavity. You know, many of these patients also have, you know, cranial nerve neuropathies, you know, their facial nerve, their hypoglossal nerve unilaterally can be impaired. So they have issues kind of down the line, you know, and then their neopharynx doesn't contract. They have no laryngeal elevation because they have no larynx. And then their UES, you know, is really tight. It can be radiated, fibrotic. So, yeah, these are not patients without dysfunction for sure. (laughs) Oh my goodness, Lori. That's a, that's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. 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 There's a lot to think about there. What made you get into all of this? Like, sorry, this is totally off topic, but no. So, you know, interestingly, I mean, I, I have been interested in a doctorate. I have been going for a doctorate for a really long time. You know, sad, sadly, I am, you know, a dropout a few times, but I am going to try to kind of recenter myself and, and go back into it. And, you know, taking a look at the literature, you know, what's been done in terms of in head and neck cancer, what, what areas have been researched? I mean, we've looked at, you know, transoral robotic resection patients. We've looked at their swallowing outcomes, chemo radiation. I mean, you can't do anything better than Kate Hutchinson and what they're doing at MD Anderson in terms of looking at, you know, surgical or, or non-surgical patients and their dysphagia, and Kathy Lazarus and, you know, all, all of the great head and neck centers. But there isn't a lot of information. There is there aren't a lot of treatment paradigms for the total laryngectomy population because they don't aspirate. You know, we, we don't really look at their efficiency and say, you know, these patients really need our intervention for the most part. We really focus on restoring their voice, restoring their communication, and oftentimes dysphagia falls by the wayside. So I, I got interested in this because looking at their swallowing function from a why is their voice prosthesis failing? So I guess I should try to inform people why voice prostheses fail. So in a patient with a laryngectomy, there's a few ways to restore voice. One is an electrolarynx, which is that kind of mechanical device. Obviously, it's not that well-loved amongst laryngectomies because it does sound very mechanical. And then esophageal speech, which is basically burp speech, and that is not a well-used or widely used uh, method for voice restoration. But the tracheoesophageal puncture and voice prosthesis are the optimal method of restoring communication in patients that do not have a larynx. So when I first started working with patients with TL, I would notice that, you know, they'd come to me and then I'd change out their voice prosthesis and about, you know, three or four weeks later, they'd come back. And, you know, I was working in Bellevue Hospital and we don't, and none of these patients have great insurance. And so we're, you know, giving away a lot of voice prostheses and I'm saying, what's going on here? How come there's this early leakage problem? How come they're leaking after, you know, three or four weeks or even one and a half weeks? And so, you know, I contacted the people at InHealth and ATOS and, you know, got educated about why, you know, TEPs fail, especially early. And, you know, one of the reasons is from pressures or abnormal pressures in the neopharynx. And if the patient has a high pressure swallow, meaning that, below the level of the voice prosthesis, there's a high pressure system. When that patient goes to swallow, the voice prosthesis is blown open and, you know, material can leak from the neopharynx into the trachea. And the voice prosthesis itself is fine. It's just the abnormal pressures can result in early TP leakage. So 
this is really how I got into, you know, trying to look at their swallows, really not from a can they swallow point of view, but do they have stricture? Do they have spasm? Do they have issues that are impairing their ability to use their voice prosthesis? And then indeed seeing, you know, having to report, well, there really is no tongue-based retraction. You know, they're really using gravity to kind of pull the bolus down. And then, you know, kind of taking a look at some literature saying like, well, what do we do for these patients? And there's there's not much. We haven't we haven't done a whole lot of research on assessment or intervention. Awesome. Yeah. Well, that's cool, Lori. Thank you. And now you have this whole new gig at White Plains, which sounds great. I do. And it's funny because wherever I am, patients with total laryngectomy find me. Yeah. <laughs> They do. I feel like the Pied Piper. I have all these people like with their TVs following me around. But it's it's awesome because it really is a population that is underserved and not well understood. Their equipment needs are, you know, not the same as tracheostomized patients, which is, uh, you know, much better understood. I get a, a whole bunch of phone calls from nursing homes where they have patients with total laryngectomies and, you know, um, we need a modified barium swallow. We feel that the patient's aspirating. It's like, they're not a trade patient. Why do they have a Shiley in place? You know, yeah. get them the appropriate equipment, you know, and then you look in their neck, they have a prosthesis. They didn't even know they did. So it's really been a goal to try to educate other speech pathologists and facilities as to what their needs are and, you know, how to best serve them. So it's, it's been, it's been really great. I mean, gotten a lot of people to, you know, to appreciate the differences and and understand what their equipment needs are. And, you know, they don't need suctioning. They should be able to clear their own airways, you know, things like that. Yeah. I just think it's super cool because I just love, you know, I love talking to so many other SLPs and I've heard so many people say, well, I'd love to work more with like head and neck and laryngectomy. I just don't know where. And so I love that you've almost like carved out your own little niche. And I mean, you're just busier than heck, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm getting, you know, where I work in White Plains, I mean, there's when I, when I was working in the city, there are a lot of speech pathologists in the city that work with total laryngectomy because you have a lot of the major cancer centers there, Beth Israel, Memorial Sloan Kettering, Lenox Hill, Bellevue, NYU. There's, you know, Mount Sinai there, you know, havens for, for this. Up in Westchester, there really aren't, there really aren't a lot of places for these patients to go. So even if they've been operated in the city, they do come to me for their voice prosthesis changes. And, and, you know, just kind of general, I mean, when they need to go see their surgeon, clearly, you know, they go back to their surgeon. But it is really nice because I have patients that come from Poughkeepsie, way upstate. I have some patients from Connecticut that come. So, you know, once you've kind of established that you're here, it's almost like, you know, build it and they will come. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they do. Yeah. They do come. So it's, it's it really is nice. And it's nice to... So also, you know, I have a nice relationship with the ladies over at Burke Rehabilitation Center because after our patients are laryngectomized, they often need acute rehab because they have, you know, flaps and things like that. And, you know, they have issues with mobility and, and they end up not being able to return home right away. So they'll do like a short gig at an acute rehab. And so it's been great. I've gone there. I've done a couple of talks, you know, and, and so it is a, a, a kind of thing. It's, it's my thing now. I love it, Lori. Yeah. So when you say you've gone there and done some talks, have they invited you or did you just call them up and say, hey, I'd love to come talk to you guys about this? That's a good question. So I 
I think what happened was I, I often see these patients before their operation. So the surgeon will say, you know, I have Mr. Blah, blah, blah. I remember him. He had chemo radiation. He's got persistent disease. Now he needs a TL. You know, I need you to talk to him about the big operation. So we sit, we talk to the family and they always have my business card. And so then when they get operated, they don't get operated at White Plains Hospital because we don't have the ICU staff to kind of deal with the flaps and failures and things like that. So they get operated at Westchester Medical Center. And then from there, they get discharged, you know, wherever they're going. And so they always have my card. And I say, if you see a speech pathologist, give them my card so that we can, you know, have a conversation about, you know, what your needs are and, and how I can assist in any way. And so Burke actually reached out to me and they said, you know, we have this patient, we know he's yours. He's been yours. Because remember, I've seen these patients through their chemo RT, you know, many of them, they're in the salvage setting. So they've already seen me for, you know, swallowing, you know, prophylactic swallowing exercise, monitoring during their chemo RT, and now they have persistent disease. And so now they're coming for the base. So, so they've known me for a while. And so Burke reached out and, and I actually went there because nursing was, um, you know, didn't know kind of how to assist these patients using saline bullets is, is something that, you know, we don't really do in trach patients. So, you know, kind of managing their, their new airway, getting them again, the equipment they need because they can't they really shouldn't use a tracheostomy tube. They should use, you know, laryngectomy tube and heat and moisture exchange systems, things like that. So, yeah, so I was invited and so I went and then I helped them with a few patients. And now, you know, when I went back, they had another patient and they didn't even need me. And then the patient came to me for outpatient and it was awesome because I'm like, you have everything. Like they did such a great job and there's just a little bit of orientation. I mean, we're speech pathologists, right? We can figure it out. We're yeah, yeah, yeah. a bunch of ladies yeah. and men. I mean, the few of us that are men, uh, but yeah, so, so it's been great. And and I feel, I, I, you know, I feel like a resource that, you know, if you need yeah. me, I'm here. So, um, you know, I'll be happy to answer questions. I love I love hearing that, Lori, because I think, you know, so many times we're so scared to call like our, you know, colleagues or, you know, shy or nervous or I don't know what it is, but it's, you know, so many times I feel like I talk to people and I'm like, well, did you call her? Did you ask her? Like, she's right. probably a really good resource. And they're like, no, right. I don't know if I should bother her. You know, so I love, yeah. I love hearing about that continuity of care because I think there's so many things that we may think or wonder, did this happen? Right. Did that happen? And just friggin' pick up the phone and ask. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I had a patient recently that for about nine months, he was in a nursing home. He had a total laryngectomy with a surgeon around here. And he was in a nursing home for a while because they couldn't situate his, you know, his discharge disposition, I guess was unsafe or he didn't have a place to go. And he was sitting in the nursing home with a shyly trach in place for nine months with a completely functioning voice prosthesis that he could never use because he didn't have a fenestrated Larry tube or anything. He had, you know, never was able to clean his prosthesis, didn't know how to use it, didn't even know how to really use his electrolarynx. And then finally, the speech pathologist at the nursing facility saw that he was coughing coffee into his stoma, you know, into his, his shrigly and sent him for a modified barium swallow. And so the patient had a modified barium swallow. That clinician diagnosed a leak, you know, saw the prosthesis, saw the leak, sent him to Dr. Rizamni, who's the surgeon that I work with. And Dr. Rizamni said, go to Lori, she'll change your prosthesis. And within, 
he had never used his voice prosthesis because he had a, he didn't have the right equipment. He didn't have the right kind of, of a, a tube that would yeah. allow him to get, you know, to get airflow. So within like 15 minutes, I, you know, gave him a laryngectomy tube, fenestrated it, we cleaned the prosthesis, we changed it out, and he was voicing. So it was great. And then I called the speech pathologist. I said, you know, I'm here. I'm, I'm not sure why, you know, you guys didn't reach out. You know, I, I would, well, you know, we thought we were doing the right thing. And so, you know, yeah, they have yeah. that like annoyance and, you know, like we're for yeah. out. That's what our code of ethics says that we should, right? When we don't yeah. know, we should always, yeah. you know, so yeah. anyway, but these things happen. Yeah. Well, good. I'm so glad you're bringing this all to light. So I'm sure somebody right. will go to work tomorrow and be like, oh crap, that dude with a total urgency right. should probably get him some help. So right. yeah. Oh, good. All right. Sorry, I got you so off topic, Lori. No, okay. no, that's okay. <laughs> no. All right, where where are we going? What's next? So I think, you know, in terms of their dysphagia, right? So, you know, we know that there are communication issues in this population, but, you know, dysphagia, the prevalence of it is about 17% to about 72%. So just like in other populations, the range is very wide. It depends upon how you define dysphagia, right? So how do we define dysphagia in this population? Do we say, you know, they're able to resume an oral diet? Is that what defines them as being dysphagic or non-dysphagic? The fact that they're aspirating or not aspirating, which we know is not the case, right? Which we know isn't the end-all be-all of swallowing function, you know, and so I think that that's probably the reason why the prevalence numbers range so so widely. But when you prompt these people, they'll they'll initially say, no, I don't have any swallowing problems. And, you know, as in other populations, once you probe them and say, well, tell me about, right, tell me about what you're eating. Tell me, but well, you know, I really can't have any hard meat. So, well, you know what? I'm pretty much swallowing soups and liquids. And you're like, okay, but that's that not fun. <laughs> we really want you to be right. We want you to try the, you know, and the kind of more they perpetuate that being on a modified diet, the less they're actively engaging the musculature, just like any other population, right? So, you know, one of the things that you know we try to use are like subjective measures like the MDADI, right? The, the MD Anderson dysphagia inventory, right? So, but that's really standardized on a population of head and neck patients that are not your alaryngeal patients. So there is actually a, it's called the swallowing outcomes after laryngectomy. It's called the SOAL, S-O-A-L, and it's a 17 item questionnaire that, and it's a very simple questionnaire. And it says things like, you know, do you, have you, you know, changed your eating habits, your social habits? And the, the answers are no, a little, a lot. So it's a very simple and it has good internal validity. It's psychometrically sound for the laryngectomy population in regard to their dysphagia. So, no, that's an important thing. That's, you know, the performance status scale, the M, the M daddy, and even some of the other measures are really not specific for this population and this one was. And so that made me kind of excited to start using something that was very population specific. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, for years, you know, video flora was kind of the, the gold standard because you also want to look at esophageal function in these patients. And in fact, 
Um, we've talked a little bit about the oropharyngeal or oropharyngeal issues where you have, you know, poor tongue base movement, poor contraction of the neopharynx, you know, impaired mobility of the upper esophagus. But there were some, some researchers that looked at the, the pharynx and the esophagus using high resolution manometry more recently, like in 2016 to 2017. And there was one patient in their study that had normal esophageal function. So many of these patients have achalasia, jackhammer esophagus. They have, you know, really poor esophageal motility. So, you know, also suggesting that, you know, just because they're TLs doesn't mean that their issue is in the neopharynx. So we also need to look distally because many of these patients have really significant issues in the esophagus. So that was a really interesting finding. That was Zhang. They did a 2016 paper and then a 2018. One, they looked at the pharyngeal pressures and the other, they looked at esophageal function and they found that, yeah, so only one patient in the whole bunch had normal esophageal function. So yeah, I think it's all this like lit coming out about manometry. I think it's just crazy how yeah. much we didn't know about how the pressures affect everything really. Correct. So yeah, exactly. And, you know, looking at dilation, you know, dilate, like many of these patients go for dilations, right? They go for dilations because their voice prosthesis is failing and they have stricture and they have that high pressure swallow that, you know, causes them to leak all the time. And then when you look at them, you're like, you really have some solid swallowing issues, you know? And so they go for these serial dilations and, you know, maybe we can use manometry instead of taking them for, you know, back to radiology over and over and over again to look at the pressures to see whether or not they need repeat dilation, how soon, how frequent, because now there's self-dilation, right? These patients are kind of learning how to dilate themselves because this is a chronic issue because of the uh, radiation and the, the structural changes based you know, from the surgery. Which is totally wild. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I definitely want to learn that. That's not a skill that <laughs> yeah. find out how to get a bougie that these yeah. patients can like just swallow it. Well, I don't know. But I do have a couple of patients that would be really, really great. So we had, you know, a patient that he was leaking every week and a half and then we took him for a dilation. He went, I mean, not we, but the surgeon dilated him up and he was able to maintain one voice prosthesis for four months. Oh, awesome. So, yeah. And then, you know, I, I said to him, you know, these are, yeah. So it really, you know, all of these functions affect one another, you know, just like voice is impacted by what's going on in the swallowing mechanism for patients with a larynx. The same thing is, it's just in a very different way. Cool. Yeah. yeah. All right. What's, where are we going next? Well, <sighs> So we talked a little bit about modified barium swallows, and that was really the gold standard because you really want to look at now using manometry. I mean, as you know, Teresa, we both have an interest in fees. You know, how do we use fees for a population that you don't have an epiglottis, you don't have true vocal folds, false vocal folds, you know, these landmarks that are really critical when you're, when you're doing a fees, right? So Coffee and her colleagues, it was at, I think out of the UK, they did a study on, they did simultaneous fees and fluoro, and they wanted to see which measure would be best at detecting residue. Because really, in these patients, it's more about inefficiency, not about airway invasion. So, right, so that's really the, the issue with, with total laryngectomies is the 
efficiency of their swallowing function. So what she did find was that both were really good tools at looking at residue, right? And she could look at residue using a fiber optic endoscope instead of just taking them to radiology. And so that was really great because, you know, fees is something that I have as a tool here, And if you or your facility is interested in purchasing a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fee studies, as we've heard specifically in this total laryngectomy population, which is becoming more and more popular, uh, please check out our sponsor. That's NDOHD. Uh, NDOHD can be a case-portable system as well as a carded system, depending on your facility's needs. Additionally, NDOHD representatives can help clinicians set up their fees program. So contact them today at www.ndohd.com forward slash contact for more information. That's www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. And you know, she also actually, one of our other interesting studies was she looked at fees and she, she took patients and she changed their voice prosthesis a few times. And she took a look at which voice prosthesis, which brand and type left the most residue or left the least residue after the patients, you know, how much residue was left on the voice prosthesis, which is really a cool study too, because, you know, the type of voice prosthesis you have also, you know, can can certainly make a difference in terms of your voicing, you know, the length of time that you have it for. But certainly, you know, if there's one that has a hood that kind of collects residue, that was kind of the first paper that looked at that. So, you know, using fees is becoming something that's not, you know, out of the question for this population. You know, we used to use it a lot just to find the back part of the voice prosthesis to make sure that it was inserted all the way through the tract. But but we really never scoped patients for swallowing function. So that's uh, that's something that... That's so cool. Yeah, I never thought... I mean, that's so wild to think of the different residues on or different amounts of residue on the different prosthesis. And yeah. that's wild. Yeah, it is pretty cool. So, do you think that has that kind of changed the way you do you recommend different prosthesis now over others? Or, I mean, so all of our patients are punctured using the same pretty much prosthesis. And then, you know, as we kind of get to know how they are, we'll change them. You know, so some patients might need one that, you know, is coded so that it doesn't build up candida. And then, you know, there are some patients that, you know, need larger flanges. So, I mean, I haven't really incorporated that information. We did have a patient that did better with a flat back prosthesis only because he had a spasm, his esophageal, upper esophageal spasm. And we thought that he actually reported that he was feeling when he compressed his stoma, he was actually feeling the voice prosthesis. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so it was actually Deanna who works for ATOS that recommended a change. And she said, why don't you put in a flat back prosthesis? And we did. And he's getting much better voicing. So um, I also use the people from InHealth and ATOS. They're amazing in terms of, you know, helping, you know, guide me. So, you know, even though I have a pretty good amount of information. I always do reach out to, to the real experts because yeah, yeah. You know, they have things that you might not. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. Cause I feel like with equipment companies, like, you know, some people are like, well, they're the, just the salesman and it's like, right. well, they are, but they're, they genuinely are so knowledgeable about these right. products. Like they want you to use them. They want the patients to succeed. Exactly. So. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, they will have sales reps, but they also all have clinical specialists. So there's a clinical specialist that, you know, will guide you, you know, to the, and sometimes they'll even recommend, <gasps> 
my goodness, they'll recommend the other brand of prosthesis if it's going to help the patient, you know? So, so that's really, that's great. So they're not just about, you know, trying to generate revenue for their own, but it's really what's best for that particular patient. So yeah. So it's been really cool kind of doing this literature review about kind of, you know, dysphagia in, in total laryngectomy, you know, looking at, you know, there are a couple of articles that talk about treatment, you know, how do you, but there aren't great intervention studies at all. You know, maybe that might be something that I could try to carry out at some point. That would be interesting to me. think you're going to do it, Lori. I, I don't know, but I, I hope I can do it. But even like prophylactically, like if you think about these patients that have gone through chemo RT, right, and they're going to go for a salvage to a laryngectomy, maybe now is the time to talk to them about working on effortful swallow, working on, you know, things that are going to increase increase their tongue-based movement. I mean, it's probably impaired already just from, you know, the chemo radiation. Yeah. So what role does the prophylactic swallowing exercise have in this pre-surgical population? And, you know, how much should you really encourage them to, you know, because also after surgery, there's a period where they're completely dry NPO because the tissues have to grow together. So you can't introduce anything, any liquids, even really saliva. Sometimes they have like salivary bypass tubes that, you know, kind of wick away their saliva because they're at risk for, you know, to wound breakdown and fistulas. So how does that kind of period of being NPO affect their function? You know, in that that's an interesting question too. Yeah, yeah. How how long on average does that last? Like how long are they might they be MPO there? So it's usually about in in somebody who is not a complicated closure. Usually it's between like 10 to 14 days. They'll remain MPO and then we do what's called the gastrographin study. So gastrographin is a contrast agent that you use in fluoro, but it's not toxic to the tissues. So if you you do, so you're supposed to do like a small amount, you turn on the fluoro. If it starts leaking through the anterior neck or leaking into the tissue, then you stop and you you call the surgeon and say, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're compromised. If they pass the gastrographin study, then you can proceed with your fluoro. So your standard barium fluoro. So the good thing to know about gastrographin is that it's not toxic to tissue, but barium is toxic to tissue. So if you get barium into the tissues of the neck that are healing, they can cause an infect, it can cause an infection. Similarly, if you get gastrographin into the, in the lungs, unlike barium, it's not, the lungs are not very happy with gastrographin. So yeah. you use the contrast agents for different things. But um, yeah, so I've had patients that, you know, we had one patient actually, she passed away, but after her total laryngectomy, you really have to not eat. And she was like, sneaking peanut brittle and <laughs> she packed her neck with food and oh my goodness to me i mean it was the most disastrous mess um i could actually send you a picture of the slide and you can share it um, and i mean her 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 gastrographic study was like so ugly it was just leaking everywhere and she had to go back to the or and that's not typical there are you know there's a fair amount of patients that will break down, you know, and so we've had patients that, you know, end up being like a month, two months NPO and then going back. Sometimes they need hyperbaric oxygen. Sometimes our surgeons will recommend hyperbaric oxygen therapy for them to promote healing. But usually they're back eating within a month. 
But still, I mean, yeah, that's definitely a significant amount of time. I mean, even if you think of like, I mean, totally unrelated, but I'm sure related, you think of like the post-extubation patients Mm -hmm. that have been extubated for that amount of time, the amount of damage, you know, that does from not swallowing for that amount of time. That's right. And and also in the face of their prior history of radiation and chemoradiation. So, right. So how much, you know, we don't think about this because we know that they're going to swallow eventually. But what is the impact of that short period of time, right? If we laid them in a bed, right, for 10 days, right, they would get disuse atrophy of of legs and, you know, and, and core and all that stuff. And so we're basically laying their swallow muscles in a bed, for, you know, seven to 10 to 14 days, at, you know, at, at minimum. Yeah, it is, uh, all these things are kind of interesting and, you know, how does that play a role? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's crazy to think that you go from that to then saying, oh, they don't have any swallowing troubles, they don't aspirate, they're totally fine. You exactly. Know? It just, it kind of all makes a lot more sense now. Right, right. And also the xerostomia too, you can't, you can't underplay, you know, the amount, you know, xerostomia, in terms of just lubrication of the bolus and, you know, so, so that's another, you know, another issue, but yeah, so it is, I'm, I'm excited to look, kind of look for patterns, uh, look for maybe ways to improve function. You know, I never did years ago give patients like the effortful swallow or things like that to really work on, but I'm starting to now really like, listen, if you could get like 60 swallows in a day before your surgery and swallow as hard as you can, you know, many of them do have pain prior to surgery because they have persistent disease or recurrent disease. So sometimes that's a little harder to do or they're just completely overwhelmed with the whole idea of losing their yeah. larynx. Yeah. So, well, cool. Yeah. Right. I have a nice little laryngectomy group. It's only three people, but it's, it's really nice. Yeah, that's still cool though. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all guys. And so we, we talk about, I don't know, you know, we talk about a whole bunch of different topics. Sometimes we talk about sports and, you know, it's really a way for them. There's two of them in there that were really challenged in terms of their communication. So it's a really good way for them before they go out into the world, you know, to in a very safe environment to use their, you know, alaryngeal communication methods and, and support each other. Yeah. You know what, dude? Like, you need to open your mouth more, or you need to turn towards me, or let's turn the lights on. Let's, you know, make sure that we maximize all the environmental stuff. Yeah. I, I In grad school, we had a laryngectomy group, and it was like a fight who got to, like, be involved. And, you that know, because so they, cool. it, it actually was bit, it was a big group, but, like, there was so many grad students that wanted to be involved because yeah. it was just so cool. And the, the members of the group made it the experience that yes. much cooler for us too, because they, you know, would be like, let me show you this. Let me show you this, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was probably one of the most memorable experiences of grad school. So I hated that I never did end up working with that population. Cause I just have such a sympathy for that, right. you know, for that group. But yeah. yeah, if anybody works with this population that can do a group like that and invite students, it was, like I said, probably the most enlightening thing I experienced in grad right. school. Yeah, that's great. What a great, they always have the aphasia groups in grad school, but a laryngectomy group. Yeah. Yeah. We had both and no one wanted to do the aphasia group. Everyone wanted to do the laryngectomy (laughs) Because usually people are fighting over the aphasia group. No, they're fighting over the people with the larynx. Yeah. 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 It is cool. It's a nice, it's a really nice group of, uh, of people. Do you guys have students that come in? Do you guys have students 
Yeah. So we do. Yeah. Right now we actually have two. I have one and then on the inpatient side, they have one. And then on Thursdays, I take the inpatient student because my student has class that day. And that's the day that our surgeon is here. Oh, cool. Sees a lot of post-op patients. So whether they're, you know, trans or robot, you know, or they're, you know, whatever, hemiglossectomies or mandibulectomies or or TLs, it's a really good time for students to, you know, have that opportunity to see the surgical patients. So we have him come over, this other students. So we do, we take students. I have a lot of observers. I always tell them to come on Thursdays because that's the day that I, you know, do a lot of, a lot more head and neck stuff that are surgical patients. We do have a radiation oncologist and an infusion center here in our cancer center. So I will see patients that are getting like definitive chemo radiation for, you know, tonsil or tongue base or larynx. And, you know, so I do see them on other days, but Thursdays are pretty heavy surgical patients. So, Oh, cool. How neat. What a cool experience that would be. Yeah. Yeah. So, so people, people like to come and usually they'll get at least one patient walking in, you know, that needs to be changed or, you know, one of, one of my patients will come in in terms of their voice prosthesis being changed. So that's usually something cool, you know, to see. Yeah. Awesome. I want to come hang out with you, Lori. Yeah. Um, anytime you want and come on a Thursday, <laughs> go on. Yeah. Anytime you can always come. You're always welcome. Oh, fun. Cool. All right. Yeah. What's next? you know, maybe some of the strategies for patients with total laryngectomy. So, you know, important is obviously their nutrition and hydration, right? So making them get the most, just like in any population, the most bang for their buck, right? So many of these patients will benefit from a liquid assist because their propulsion, their efficiency is poor. Obviously, they don't need anything like a modified liquid usually because they're not at risk for aspiration. You can use a thicker liquid if their voice prosthesis is is leaking and that can impede the leakage just for the time being, you know, but, but typically they'll, you know, just and liquid washdown is, is something that they use, you know, and then really well lubricated foods are other, you know, kind of high moisture content, you know, just making sure like some of my patients, I always tell them to have like an olive oil dipping bowl next to what they're eating. And some patients like I use Crisco. I'm like, whatever you got to use, whatever works, <laughs> yeah. whatever works culturally. I'm Italian. So we use olive oil. <laughs> whatever you want to yeah. use, you know, gravies and, and things like that, just to add that lubrication, because it's really the dry, hard, crunchy foods that can, you know, with in between the xerostomia, the loss of power, the tongue base issue, you know, can, can be challenging. You know, so, so we always tell her, I always tell my patient, I want you, and this is Jackie Mojica from NYU. She'll always say, push it, don't swoosh it. So we always want our patients to try to use the, the forces that be that, you know, remain in the tongue base, remain in the neopharynx to try to propel the bolus. But, you know, if they need to use the liquid washdown, you know, certainly for, for efficiency, you know, that, that's what they need. So. Yeah, so some patients, you know, still, especially in the healing phases and the early phases when they first start eating and drinking after they pass their gastrographin or their leak test, you know, making sure that they have a lot of protein to make sure their tissues are healing, you know, making sure they're avoiding things like high sugars, just because if they have a voice prosthesis, they're going to build up candida and that can create issues there. But, you know, for the most part, you know, I'm looking forward to finding out what other kinds of things we can do for patients with laryngectomy and dysphagia because they're, 
disorders. We don't have good treatment paradigms for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you're still just blowing my mind, Lori, with so many cool things that, yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, it's such a cool population to me. So it's, it's, it is cool. You're doing great work. Thank you. Yeah. I try. Yeah. I try. All right. Is there any, anything else you want to cover? Just, I don't think so. I think that's, I think that might be, I, I honestly would advocate for like a short course, you know, how we do like pediatric dysphagia. Yeah. 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 Like a course in head and neck with, you know, I think in dysphagia courses in general, we touch upon it, you know, a little bit. We don't really, you know, they learn kind of what a voice prosthesis is. They learn, you know, that they leak, but they don't aspirate, you know, uh, traditionally, you know, so how does that, you know, and, that, and that's about it. And we focus a lot more on oropharynx, the oral cavity cancers, all that stuff. But I would certainly advocate, and I did when I, when I taught my dysphagia course, now I teach for NYU online, which is a great, a great, you know, and, and Dr. Yeah, that's and awesome. Dr. Fenter, she created all these synchronous materials and there's a little bit on laryngectomy, but I think in the future, what I would advocate would be for, you know, uh, speech pathologists to have a greater understanding of the mechanism behind their swallowing, the mechanism of, uh, behind their voice restoration and their needs, equipment needs and, and things like that, because it is really, truly a population that, you know, if you haven't worked with them or, or understand, you know, you, you can really fall short in terms of, you know, giving them what they need. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that would be something that I would advocate for our, our education. Yeah. Awesome. And I think I asked you, Lori, was there a specific like paper or anything that really was like a game changer for you in the way you treat these patients? I think, like, obviously, Eric Blum, you know, did a lot of, you know, work with voice restoration and, you know, in terms of, you know, using certain voice prostheses, certain sizes, diameters, you know, a lot of his early work kind of shaped me in terms of using voice prostheses. And, you know, I went to his conference and it was just, you know, the tissues are so delicate and, and, you know, how I insert the prosthesis. So, you know, that his work was, you know, pretty seminal for me. And then just, you know, in terms of dysphagia in total laryngectomy, pretty much the coffee papers blew my mind in terms of using fees and, and, you know, the, the cool stuff they did with, you know, residue on different voice prostheses. I thought, I thought that was really cool. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank you so much to all of you for listening. Coming soon from Speech Science, Talking with Tech. With me, Rachel Madel and Chris Bugay. What are we going to be talking about? Stop feeling so daunted by technology. Push the button. You're not going to break it. Help people start implementing. Maybe listen to our podcast and go, well, I could try that tomorrow. Conversations with the thought leaders behind all this. I'd also love to hear success stories. If it's working for you, then maybe it could work for somebody else. Go to tech.speechscience.org, subscribe to our podcast, and check that site for exclusive content that you won't see anywhere else. Please listen carefully. 
Hi, I'm Matt Hott, one of the hosts of Speech Science, a weekly podcast bringing you all the information that you can handle related to speech sciences and disabilities. Ivan Campos, Lucas Stuber, and I interview leaders and difference makers in the field. Every Tuesday, we drop a new episode. You can find us on iTunes, Android, and on our website, www.speechscience.org slash speech science podcast. Join us as we try to find the answers to the question, what is communication?